This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Welcome back to another episode. You're sitting down with Sarah Bartholomew's today, who runs U Legal. Um, now, this is a bit of a bizarre, coincidental meeting that we had. Uh, I got an email that came through on my computer, and it was just one of those emails that said, Hi, Kim, love your podcasts. Uh, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. And I was like, beauty, thumbs up. Thank you ever so much, Sarah. But then, actually, because of your unique last name, I actually thought, now, where have I heard that name before? And I had a flashback to when I was doing the, I was installing the solar heating on my underground pool on the roof and I was listening to a podcast with Tim Reed and you were the guest and I could not believe, I thought, hang on, I think that that is the lady that was being interviewed in that podcast and I thought at the end of that podcast, because I was on the roof, I made a mental note, I've got to meet that lady and I've got to catch up with her and I want to speak to her and she's in Adelaide and she runs a legal firm and that we had so many things in common, but because of you know the busyness of life, it all just went out the window. But when you sent me the email, it like jogged my memory. I, I replied and I said I scrapped everything I'd written, which was my standard reply to you know um, thank you and kind emails about the podcast. And it's like, oh my god, are you the person that Tim Reed interviewed two years ago when I was on the roof? And <laughs> I didn't and then, know you were on the roof. No, you didn't. And but. Um, you remembered that interview and it was you and um, yeah you said oh my god that was ages ago and then I think I said I was really directing the email back to you and I said would you be a guest on the show and I'm thinking she's gonna think who the hell is this guy Uh, and you said yes so that was good so we caught up for coffee last week had a chat heaps in common so here we are today now I feel like I'm in enemy territory I know (laughs) I'm in another accountant's boardroom sitting at this amazing boardroom table it is incredible and the receptionist has made me this amazing coffee and here we are looking out over Adelaide and I'm thinking oh my god one day I want my accounts practice to be like this it's pretty special <laughs> it's good isn't it anyway thank you ever so much for coming on the show now I've got to say and this is not I'm not being rude but thank god you didn't name your legal firm after with your last name and that was <laughs> not an accident because <laughs> I have so much trouble everyone in my office goes how can you be called Nitschke Nankaro? Oh, my God, I go out to a function and no one can understand it or spell it. Can you change it to something else? Whereas when I looked at your last name and had to type it, I thought, wow, that's taking it to another level. That's actually like double my number of characters in mine. Anyway, that's irrelevant. You are a lawyer and you have become Telstra Businesswoman of the Year. Mm-hmm. That just blows me away. We're in the presence of royalty here. It's pretty exciting. Can you just tell us a bit about um, how that came about and which category you won? Sure. So back at the end of 2015, I won the startup category for South Australia. And how did it come about? I had a nomination come through from a client and filled out the paperwork and became a finalist. And lo and behold, had an interview and my name was called out on the night and there were five or six other finalists in my category. And Another one of them was a lawyer as well. So, yeah, it, it honestly is, if anyone's interested in doing awards, it's 
the Telstra Business Awards and the Telstra Business Women's Awards are ones that can change the trajectory of your life. So it wasn't just Adelaide. This is Australia-wide, isn't it? Mine was South Australia. Yours South Australia, okay. But when I think of Telstra Business Women's of the Year, I think of like people like Gina Reinhart and things like that. That's the calibre of people that win there those sorts of awards. some pretty amazing alumni. Well, so you're in the startup category. Was it um, like... What, did you have phenomenal growth in that year? Like, how do they work out the winner? How, how do they choose? Like, first of all, what what is a um, you know startup from in terms of their categories and like what, what's it based on? So, startup I think was businesses under three years old, okay. and we did have incredible growth. So, from our first year to our second year, we grew four hundred percent. Four hundred. And the growth has continued year on year since then. Not that dramatic because uh, once, as you know, you start growing from a hi- higher base, then it, it doesn't kind of, yeah, it's not sustainable. Um, so that was something they took into account. I think our interest in helping the community was something that they took into account. We're very focused on empowering businesses to set themselves upright so that they don't end up in litigation and they like that. Uh, our use of technology for Telstra, I think, would have been interesting and we have very similar values to Telstra and I don't know I did well at the interview I suppose it's it's fantastic anyway then uh, I think this was on your website but you were on the Today Show or something I was on Studio 10 (laughs) can you tell us about that (laughs) sure so I wrote a book in 2016 called Kingpin Legal Lessons from the Underworld and that book had uh, incredibly wide appeal for everyday Australians because it's about how to run your business like a drug dealer runs their business. And I've always loved shows like The Sopranos and Underbelly and I really wanted to write a book that would appeal to everyone so that they would think about risk in a different way in their business Mm. and I was on holiday in Thailand and I thought drug dealers deal with risk and it turns out drug dealers deal with risk before they deal with anything else in their business because the risks are so high they could be assassinated they could be imprisoned so it was actually a very unique take on risk and the media had a field day with it. They loved it. So, yes, meeting Ita Buttrose is definitely one of the highlights of my career so far. I love her. Well, can we just drill down on that? Like, did you ever practice as a criminal lawyer? No. Okay. Um, I, I've been thinking about this book that you wrote because I think it's a little bit weird <laughs> to, special, to write about criminals and mm. like I, I love that risk concept because I'm in the middle of El Chapo on Netflix mm. and I'm totally hooked and mm. I've watched Narcos as well mm. to the point where and, and this is what I want to ask you is do you did you research these crims and like Google stalk them yeah all of that sort of stuff Can so you- I, I look at the three things they did well to grow their businesses because they grow incredibly big businesses. So Pablo Escobar at one stage was bringing in $142 million a week US. So huge money. You got to be adding a lot of value in to some people, even if we don't agree with it from the 
damage that they do to the community. They definitely do that. But I still thought academically it's a very interesting study. So I looked at seven drug dealers. El Chapo's one of them. The three things they did well to grow their business and what ordinary businesses can learn from that and then the one thing that brought them down as well and what we can learn from that from a policy and risk management point of view in our businesses. Okay, can we go to Pablo Escobar because this is fresh in my mind. What was the one thing that brought him down? He um, was incredibly good at public relations. So he built uh, his business through influencing the community, giving money to social enterprises, public housing, sporting clubs, those sorts of things. And what he did that did bring him down was he overestimated his ability to control people through that influence. And he started uh, killing judges, journalists, anyone who spoke out about him, politicians, and... Because of that, um, people turned against him and that brought him down. Because, uh, yeah, I think that's spot on with – I'm just lining that up against what I saw in the movie. <laughs> uh, well, no, but Which may the, be slightly sensational. Yeah, but I think he ran for parliament. He did and he managed to – one of his biggest risks, talking about risks, was um, being deported to the United States. He wanted to die overdoing that. And so what he did was he ran for parliament, got elected through his influence and managed to change the law to ban extradition of prisoners from Colombia to the United States. That was all he wanted, just never to end up in the United States. And that's exactly what's happened to El Chapo. He has been deported from Mexico. Yes. And he's in a, he, from, from what I gather, he's in a prison in New York. Mm, it's a long in, way from home. In solitary confinement. And his girlfriend wrote a post um, about how his treatment's inhumane, he can't have any visitors. Anyway. It probably is. <laughs> but, probably. He, but El Chapo, for three or four years in a row, was listed by Forbes magazine as one of the most powerful people in the world. <sighs> so it's a massive fall from grace for him mm, it <laughs> to is. be in solitary confinement because when El Chapo was in jail in Mexico, it was a bit like when Pablo was in jail. He could pay the guards to bring him whatever he wanted, whenever he mm. wanted. And presumably being in prison in the United States isn't quite as cushy as mm. it was in Mexico. El Chapo also escaped from prison in a few times in the, in Mexico by digging his way out. Yeah, and I like... I like this bribery component of the whole El Chapo thing. Like, so I remember in, in one of the scenes, he was, you know, he, he was allowed out in the, the the day yard, and he asked one of the judge, one of the um, guards, guards, whether we could have another twenty minutes for like a hundred US dollars. And you know, the guard thought about it for five well, five seconds and said, "Sure." And then that was the line that was crossed, and then that all just escalated, and he knew that that guard was basically corrupt. And then in the end, he paid off enough guards in the prison so that they basically snuggled him out in a trolley to a van in the yard and away he went into the community, free, free man. And then, you know, and, and he, his reputation built on that. Like he met up with all of his criminal friends and said, well, you know, who can, who can come up against me? I escaped out of a high security prison. And 
Anyway, on it goes. But I can see a lot of parallels in the business world with managing risks like those criminal guys. And even that risk you just mentioned or that ethical line that you mentioned where he gave him the $100 and he had to decide at that point, would he accept the money, the guard? That happens to people in business every day. Small decisions lead to very big outcomes and it's just, and and that happens with success or it happens with that crossing a line you shouldn't have, have happened. So success is built on small habits every day for you, doing a podcast every week, putting out that podcast. Um, different things happen than if you didn't do that. Mm. And in that guards t- taking the money or um, making a decision with a friend that you might not have made to give them information about a publicly traded company or whatever it is, mm. We have to make those decisions every day in our lives. It's not just prison guards and drug dealers that have to make those decisions. Yeah. It's just more interesting talking about them. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, there's a lot of – like I think every day in business our integrity is tested. Mm. And, um, you know, even this morning I was speaking to a, another lawyer about a client and they wanted me to sign a letter. And at the end of the day I didn't feel comfortable about it and so mm. I had a heated argument with the lawyer but – it was a line that I didn't want to cross. It was mm. similar to what we're talking about. Um, and th- there's also a lot of ethical judgments that we're making constantly in our, in our line of work. Like, and, and my acid test is, am I happy, hand on my heart, to stand up in court and say that I've made this decision? You know, mm. Is it the right decision? Because there's so many grey areas. And so I find that that's my test. And if, if I'm going to be called to account and have to explain my position on making a decision in front of a whole range of people that makes it usually pretty clear that it's uh, I want to take a conservative approach in most situations. Mm. Anyway, now, I know that you like true crime podcasts. I do. Which, are we, which is your favourite? I've told you too much. <laughs> okay. Is it just the true, true crime one that's on, um, on the uh, Apple iTunes podcast? I think that's the one I told you that that's my favourite. Yeah. Is, is there a particular story that you like in those – uh, in that series that he's covered? I really like, uh, I, well, I mean, like, it's hard to... Well, have you got a favourite? Well, what I, um, what I like listening to the ones that he does on Australian crimes that I already know about. Okay. Oh. To hear about them in more depth. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, he did one on Port Arthur. Okay, um, yes. And understanding, I was in year 11 when that happened, and so understanding... What happened in more detail, I just remember the aftermath and the decision about banning guns and, and those sorts of things. And as a lawyer, I suppose how things that happen that affect the law interest me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other ones that he's done that are interesting. There's one called The Summerton Man. I think he did one on the Beaumont children. So local crimes from here in South Australia that I didn't know a lot about. Um, there's, the, the, there's a recent one on Carly Ryan uh, oh, and so cool. the impact of the internet on crime interests me as well. So mm. he's done one on the Silk Road, which is a, another drug dealer one, probably oh. why I like it so much, an online um, platform, I suppose, where people could buy oh, drugs. Yes. Uh, and that one goes over a number of episodes. So mm. really interesting. My favourite one was Peter Falconio. 
Yeah. Did you get into that one? Yeah. Um, I liked it in so far as, like, you know, I think that the whole murder, you know, it, it's just the facts that the police reiterate and the journalists and, you know, everything that you read in the paper is almost all the same. But mm. when when he actually drills down and goes through all the notes from the and case. And you understand more the journey that the killer has been on for mm. their life as well and what even what was going on for them that day. Yeah, and that the killer in that situation was pretty mixed up. Yeah, person. and delusional. Yeah, and I liked it that you know, it traced their three hours before they died and they went and got Red Rooster in Alice Springs <laughs> mm. and there was, um, there was CCTV footage of Peter Falconio, his girlfriend... And the murderer all went to Red Rooster mm. that same day, and then the defence for the murderer was saying, "Well, the DNA on the murderer was because he brushed alongside of him in the Red Rooster," you know. And it's like that. Well, that's crazy. And then also, they you know they were in their car. They had it serviced because it wasn't running correctly. And then they smoked a joint and watched the sunset. And then they had to push on to the next town. And so they were they're pu- pushing their V-dub combi into the night. And then, you know, the murderer pulled past. And we all know the story, all of that. And he pulled, pulled him over and then shot Peter. And it's a terrible story. But we were we were driving back from the snow listening to that. And I had my boys in the car. What? And Sophie, yeah, and it, it was, we were fascinated by it because it's real life. You know, it's a true story. I do not listen to these with my children in the you car. You don't? There's a lot of swearing. And some of them are quite sick. And uh, we sort of fast forward through the good bad idea. parts, but anyway, it was really, really good. I'm, I'm fascinated that you like that, but I find that I'm googling them, looking up in Wikipedia, finding out what their children are doing now, mm. all that. Which I think, you know, if someone looked at my computer, they might think that this is all a bit bizarre. And I'll look at their Facebook profiles. Oh <laughs> wow, that's the next level. I think it's all totally legitimate, but because um, I'm fascinated, I want to understand as much as I possibly can about these people. Mm. Now we're going to change tack. Um, April Armstrong and the BFD movement. Yes. All right. Can you please just tell us what BFD is? Sure. It's Business for Doctors. Started as an online community of Facebook, I think, uh, and there's a website. So BFD is basically a community for doctors. There's a conference every year, like a major conference uh, in Sydney this year and Brisbane next year. I'd love to have it in Adelaide next year. I'll have to hit April up about that. Uh, And, yeah, it's just a really great community for doctors to learn about things that they're not necessarily taught at med school. So they have finance experts, people talking about different sorts of tax People talking about emotional intelligence, mm. lots of different presenters. Okay, so April, it was Dr. April Armstrong. She's a doctor who operates, I think she's originally from Adelaide. She operates a, a GP practice in Kalgoorlie in, yes. in a mining town in Western Australia. Um, and how I met April was we both won a Telstra Business Women's Award the same year and we met at the finals. Oh, wow. And so you became good friends ever since? Yeah. Okay. And do you speak to her on a regular basis? I do. I find her, um, like, she's very, very protective of her Facebook group 
Okay. And I've tried to join a couple of times. Well, you're not a doctor. No, it's no. only for doctors. I know. So I'm not allowed to join. Um, I, I haven't will, even tried. <laughs> but you've managed to penetrate into the group and you're uh, almost like the legal counsel that goes and speaks at the conferences. Yeah, and I provide them with content and, yeah. And so you've written a book. I have. Uh, Growing a Medical Practice. Yes. Which... Um, for the people who don't know, you wrote it in December last year. I did. You got up at five o'clock in the morning. I did. And wrote a thousand words every day for 30 days. Yes. And it's actually a 40,000 word book. So it got fleshed out somewhat after December. So I read the book this week. It was really, really good. Oh, good. Lots of really interesting content. Usually legal books I find are a bit dry. Understandably. But, you, you know, you've managed to make it interesting and informative. And, and so, but there's a strong connection there because you use the BFD conference to launch the book i did i launched it on the first day of the conference this year so it's a book that's written for doctors about running their medical practice and yes. all of the things that legally they should keep an eye out for um, and it's a bit of a roadmap on, on 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 things to look out at things to look at and things to consider and all of the issues and ways that you can get sued and managing risk and all of that and i found it really really useful so well done for writing that but this is your third book it is uh, and what sort of like, so you, you wrote the book and now like I, I heard you being interviewed by someone else on a podcast recently and you said that you suffered while you were writing the book, like an imposter sort of syndrome. syndrome. Mm. Can you explain to us what that means? What it is? Sure. So I think it happens with every book. I think if you're thinking about writing a book, do it. It's the best personal development journey that you'll ever go on. Uh, I, every time at a certain point in writing the book, maybe when the manuscript's finished and it's getting polished by an editor and it's about to go to print, I think, who am I to write this book? You're not worthy. There's people who are better at writing books than me or better at understanding certain areas than I am why would I yeah why am I worthy because that seems almost crazy now because it's such a great book <laughs> I don't know it, it, like obviously you've got a gift at writing and explaining concepts and you, you're really organized I get that like you're a systems person and this book is it, it, it's I, I think that your first two books wouldn't have been as good as this one because you've learned mm. from writing them and and you've actually rolled it all into this one but so I imagine that now you're considered by the industry as a thought leader. How do you define that? I know, but well, <laughs> so I guess for me that's in, in the Facebook group, you know, you, you're not part of it. But when the conversations are happening amongst the doctors, oh, do you know a good lawyer or can a lawyer, do you know someone who can come through and re redo our shareholders agreement or whatever, you're the person's name that's put forward now. Yeah, and... Um Australian Doctor Group have been publishing chapters of the book as well, so that's been really nice to have them supporting us and sending it out to their thousands of doctors. So how many copies did you get printed? A thousand. Okay. Well, I, I love my copy, so it's great. I've, I've gone through it and I've highlighted and I've got yellow tabs all through it. Um, <laughs> no, I, th I just You're think it's really nerd. good. I, I, no, but, well... I'm I'm raving about it because I think that there's room for me to write one about yeah. accounting in that you space totally as well. You totally should. Yeah. I'm not as good with a pen as you are, but listening to that, is it Build, Live, 
grow or build, live, give. Oh, yes. Yeah, that guy. He said that he um, is writing a book and he rings up his ghostwriter or whatever and speaks to them for three hours every week or every fortnight and then the writer goes away and writes down what he said. So I think that that would work for me. Yeah, what uh, suggestions I would give you on that rather than just I don't know how he's doing it but I find having a contents page already pre-arranged so that I know what I'm going to write every day when I get up at five or for you when you speak for three hours once a week. Um, So you know what you're talking about. You can kind of shape the ideas rather than having someone just listen to you talk. Just rub it on for ages. then try and shape it. Yeah, okay. So know who you're writing for, know what you're saying and just give them the chance to shape the message maybe. So with the book, have any other, like, I remember when we were having the coffee, you said that um, you had a marketing person who came in and they sort of um, saw what opportunities you could leverage off of that. Was that after that or was after the winning the Telstra Business Women of the Year? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Exactly. Let, let's approach from a different angle. You've got Andrea in Sydney who is a marketing person. Yes. Okay. What does she do? She helps. So I kind of do the writing and so we send out a newsletter once a week to doctors, not so, once a week, once a, once a month, and once a month we send out one to all other businesses as well. So the doctors can be on both and then they get one once a fortnight. So I'll write the blog and she organises to send it out. Mm-hmm. Um, she does our social media curates that we also have a facebook group called you legal for doctors and that has um because i'm not allowed in the business for doctors group so i just started my own and that has content in it that's relevant for doctors and medical practices so if there's a law change i'll put something up they're saying, hey, have you heard about the Notifiable Data Breaches Act? Because you might need to do something, even if it's get extra insurance or not necessarily something that drives back to me, but something that adds value to our community. Wow, that's good. It's great. Okay. Um, so, And she, she helps with the content in there, asking people what it is that they need so that we're giving people information that they want. But she's not actually writing it for you. No, but she does the kind of background. She does the distribution? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because I have a marketing guy as well, but um, I actually say to him, can you go away and do the research and can you do the writing of the content? And he does. But my only complaint with that is it's not deep enough. Mm. So if he's writing about a complex accounting topic Mm. he'll come back and he'll just sort of surface yeah Mm. surface and and everyone from what I get every time I um, get feedback from someone they always want to go deeper Mm. you know so um, that's one thing that we're working on Mm. so we'll get a a combination of that happening because I mean I find with being busy every time I look at marketing it always gets pushed to the background Mm. because if the phone's ringing and the new customers are coming in we think well am I going to look after them or am I going to put them on hold new people and go strangers on, yeah and go on which you know and when you explain that to people they go yeah i get that but even so um you still need to do your marketing mm. because it needs to be bubbling away in the background because you always need the fresh leads coming through and, and we try and do different marketing from other law firms because we're different so we mm. are trying to keep things fresh hence 
writing a book about drug dealers and writing a book for doctors, which I'm not sure any other lawyers have ever done. No, it's fantastic. Okay, so you actually are specialising in the medical space and you've chosen doctors because they help people? Yes, we did a big corporate transaction last year, half a billion dollars for a global client of ours. And afterwards we were, not surprisingly, completely exhausted, the whole team. And so we did a bit of a values review and decided that we, what worked for us was we wanted to help people who help people because it works for our values and it works for the world. And I come from a medical family. Two of my doctors, uh, two of my uncles are surgeons, two of my, or three of my cousins are doctors. So it was a community that meant something to me personally as well. And we had a, a bunch of doctor clients and allied health clients. And we realised they're the people we like to help the most. So it seemed like a, a perfect match. Um, I like uh, operating that space as well and it's for different reasons. I, I think that I just like the character. I like the hospitals. I like the surgeries. I like the nature of the doctors. They're people pe- persons. Mm. Or they're people people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just – everything about it I'm fascinated by. I, I'm not good with blood. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> but apart from that, and then it's also the money thing too, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but because they're um, high-income earners, I think from an accounting point of view, I'm able to offer more value. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're giving the best tax advice or accounting or structure advice to a pensioner, they can't afford to pay you. Mm. Whereas if you're giving that Or to they can't a, afford to take the advantage of what you know. That's right. Whereas with a doctor... Um, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, fantastic. If you can do that and if you can run this part of my life and sort this finance, you know, I'm happy to pay your bills. Mm. You know, they obviously want value for money, but I find that they're the um, perfect fit for our organisation. Now, when you go into a, a medical practice and they say, right, Sarah, can you come in and be our lawyer for our business? Um What's probably the most common problem that you fix most of the time when you go in and you're, um, you know, brought in to sort of fix um, or bring their medical practice up to date? I think policies and procedures are a big one, making sure that they're right and that they protect the practice owner because a lot of um, a lot of them haven't. Well, a lot of them we've done when people have set up their practice. So setting up right is something I'm a really big fan of. So if they're entering into a new lease, having that lease checked so that they know if where there's room for negotiation, we tend to know what's normal in leases. And if you're not looking at leases every day, like most doctors aren't, they might not necessarily know what the options are there. Um, making sure people's shareholders agreements are set up right from the beginning or if they're having a new partner enter, having that shareholders agreement reviewed and making sure that everyone's moving in the same direction for the practice and making sure the contractor agreements are genuine contractor agreements because there's a huge risk that a lot of medical practices take where they're actually employing doctors that are classified on their books as contractors and there's a big risk of future costs being associated with that if they're not taking into account 
for example, super or they should be paying leave and they get reported and then suddenly have to pay back leave if someone's left. So um, if, if someone is being paid as a contractor and then they leave and they have a disagreement with that um, medical practice, then they can turn around and say, well, you should have paid me superannuation. Mm. Is that what you Yeah, they can report to? it to the, the ATO. Okay. Do you, um, I'm inter- you, you touched on something just a moment ago with the um, shareholders agreement or partnerships agreements. Do you get involved with doctors who are basically fighting amongst their group? Yes. So we've had people that have wanted doctors to leave um, and working out what the fair way to split the equity is how um, that's going to be paid for, how they're going to not feel too aggrieved when they leave. Other ones where there's been um, staff members stealing and they they have to kind of figure out how that happened and um, and it causes discontent between the owners as well. And that's probably more a policy issue, not having the right policies in place. Um, and also we've had um, ones where... Uh, someone's died suddenly and having to work out with the existing shareholders how they're going to go on and who the replacement shareholder is is it does the agreement say that that shareholder that that shareholding automatically goes to the family or is there a provision in the shareholders agreement that means that you buy that share back for a particular sum and you carry on the business. It's a big problem, isn't it? Because like the medical practice thing is quite unique because sometimes, um, I, well, I don't, it's not like the accounting fraternity where you can sell your customers to the mm. person down the road. It's more or less you can refer them to another doctor. Mm. And how do you attribute a value to a practice where you, you know, like someone dies And you don't have their labour anymore, which is a big part of the value of the practice. Yeah. Do you pay them a small amount or a large amount? I mean, you've got to go back through the documents. And then it's a case of, well, often in these situations, you've got to sit down with all the doctors and work out what everyone's happy with and Mm. what everyone's expecting and bring a member in from the family where the doctors died and say, look, can you sit in on this meeting and... I don't know. It's. I mean, you try to keep everyone happy. Obviously, some people try to be greedy and mm. other people are um, overly generous and you've got to try to find a happy medium. That's right. So with um, so plenty of contractor agreements, shareholder agreements, setting up companies, trusts, service trusts, mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. All that stuff. Okay. Um, I get asked oh, almost every day about PSI. Mm-hmm. Do That's another that? thing, business for doctors. I've seen uh, at the at those conferences, we don't touch on it. I, okay. We don't do tax. Okay. So, um, well, for me, per, it's personal services income yes. and it's like, um, you know, a typical situation is where you've got um, a doctor, be it husband or wife, and their partner might be unemployed, keeping the home fires burning or whatever. Mm. Can they operate through a trust and split Distribute that income? Distribute the income to the partner that's not working. And obviously, you know, all the income's still accessible, but if you can split the income, then you collectively lower the marginal tax rate. 
So that's a big issue for everyone. Mm. I had a phone call from a doctor yesterday in Sydney who told me that um, could I help him? He had an issue with PSI and he'd been fined $150,000. On top of the tax bill? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so that was just out of the blue. But So that's a big issue. The other one that I get asked every week mm. is about salary packaging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you touch on that one at all? Uh, well, we haven't really... No. Had to. It's more accounting questions. Yeah, it's more they're, of an accounting thing, I yeah, think. They're, they're, so, they're just the contentious issues yeah. that I guess I'm going to be writing more blogs about. Because you want people to be doing it right rather than having that phone call from the tax office that that doctor had saying, got to pay another $150,000 oh, in penalties. It would be terrible. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Um, now, with you, Legal, you outsource a lot of your work. So we have lawyers that work in this office. Uh, and we also have lawyers that contract to us. And uh, can you tell us a bit about that, the good, the bad and the ugly of it? Because, sure. um, like, how does that work as a business model for your firm? So the reason that I set it up initially with contractors was when I started G-Legal, I, it was just me and I had one client and I thought, this is great. I have created a job for myself that I love and I started getting more and more work and I didn't know what to do. I thought I can't do all of this on my own, but I've just had a baby and I don't want to have, I don't want to build a traditional law firm because there, I knew there were so many things that could kill it. The cost of rent, the cost of unproductive staff. I just didn't, I guess I was a bit of a commitment phobe in that sense. I wanted to be able to run lean and agile and be able to change it up if I wanted to. Because I didn't know what was going to happen with my kids. So I invented that model, basically. I thought uh, I'll have lawyers contract to me. I'll work from home. And now, obviously, I don't work from home. I rent offices within another accounting firm, which is a great situation for me and my team. means that we seem to work in the office with 100 people, even though there's four of us that work here in the office. Um, so we have moved towards having some people come in-house as we've grown to have that team atmosphere and one of our lawyers, Daniela, has four kids and so she sees coming in here as a bit of a break. Uh, But having the contractor model, good, bad, ugly, I've only really found it mostly good. Uh, We've had our team members for the five years we've been operating, most of them have been with us and they're lawyers that want flexibility in their work. They might be mums, they might live on a rural property and have other things to do other than work as a lawyer uh, or they might have elderly parents that they want to take care of. Like there's lots of different reasons that people want flexibility in the way that they work but it means for us we can keep our costs lower because we don't have that overhead of staff. We um, bring experts in when we need them and it seems to work very well. I know that some workplaces when they're managing contractor workforces have real trouble with it but we've picked people who align with our values and align with our service requirements we like to turn things around in two or three days so it's worked really well if people haven't fitted in we've known very quickly and just haven't continued with them where's the source of getting these people i advertise through seek and through our law society with with every state's law society. And what would the ad in Seek look like? It's 
uh, it just says contractor lawyer and now it's a lot, people know what it is. But contractor lawyer, I would think that that's like a six-month contract. So we say you have to have your own practising certificate and insurance, you need to have good standing in the legal community, you must uh, have great service, customer service focus. And you get people applying for those jobs? We get too many people applying for them, yes. That's fascinating because, well, I haven't gone down that track with SEEK. I've only advertised for full-time employees under SEEK uh, and had success, which has been good. Um, I still find that I tend to recruit people that are referrals from family, friends, clients, you know, um, and the fit for me is country people that are moving to the city doing accounting courses and things like that. And I find the junior guys are good. But I'm fascinated in your, in your model because um, I've tried it with Upwork and I find that um, great for doing the mundane sort of work, but as soon as it's higher level, uh, you know, it's a, it's a struggle to get those sorts of people. Um, but you don't have that problem at all like what I want to learn how you do it so that I can sort of copy it when I get um, inundated with extra work to have contractor accountants yeah I think it's a great model there must be accountants that don't like marketing mm-hmm. that just want to do the work yeah I, I think that there's thousands of um, you know first-time mothers at home that would love to do it but can't be in an office from nine to five, happy to work at home from seven till 11 when the baby's in bed asleep. But I just don't find those people, you know, I I don't know whether they're not looking on Upwork or whatever, but maybe it's just the accounting space. But I'm fascinated that you can get that model to work and it works really well. Um, And these people are reliable. Absolutely. And If they're not, they don't make it. And are you sort of more or less impressed by the quality of work that comes back to you? Because obviously you review it before it goes out. I do review it. Uh, and if I'm not impressed, then they don't stay okay. with us. But so is there a high turnover? Like, so say you've got a job that you're putting out, not to tender, but it's almost like to tender. And then, it, and then you know, you might have a set, let's just say you've got a 14 day or a seven day window. You give it to lawyer A, it comes back, it's crap. You go to lawyer B. I wouldn't, it wouldn't come back crap. <laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that first person hasn't worked out. Yeah. I, I would use smaller jobs to test them. Okay. First, so they get a lot of testing before <laughs> they kind of get on the very regular use list. And um, it, so are they mainly females? They are at the moment. Any males? There have been in the past, just not at the moment. Okay. Um, And they're regular ongoing So because I find too that, you know, they'll be good for six months and then they go and tour Europe. Does that happen? Uh, We've had people go overseas but continue to work for us while they're overseas and it might just be that their capacity isn't as high as it was when they were working from home or working from a co-working space or wherever it is that they work from. do they? Do you have to pay a higher hourly rate than you would if they were an employee? Yes. Okay. Because I only pay them for work that they charge okay. for. So is it like, as a ballpark, would it be like thirty to fifty percent higher? Yes. Okay, and that's factored into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's still economical and profitable. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Because um, we do project work, and what we like to do is mostly fix fees for it. So if a lawyer can fix their fee at a day's work and I can fix it 
then it's good for me, it's good for them, and it's great for the client. Okay. So what if then, uh, yeah, I guess that's just normal in any job, like if, if there's sort of like scope creep. Mm, then we. Then you just up the fee and then you give them extra work and then they, you know. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And right. they own that particular project. Was that one of the factors that made you Telstra Businesswoman of the Year because you had this unique legal firm? Yes. They love that whole contract model. I think that it's different, that no one else has done it. Doing it. Okay. Wow. And so I think you're similar to me that you've you've developed this now affiliation with the doctor fraternity and you're getting lots and lots of work out of that space and thoroughly enjoying it and your business is growing rapidly and all of a sudden you're going to wake up and all of your clients are going to be doctors. Maybe. That's, that's where it's heading. Maybe. Is that how you see it? I, I know you still I do got, see it that way. And you've still got your existing client base and you can never get rid of them because, you know, they're always going to be loyal and but but the growth will be in that other sector. Yes. Okay. Um, and the next Business for Doctors conference, they're overseas, are they? Most of these or? No, I think there's one in Japan though in February. They're not mostly overseas though. Okay. They're mostly throughout Australia. Okay. And there's a, a couple hundred doctors go? Yes, depending on where they are. Okay. I found them fascinating because um, I went to one session and there were so many questions about what code in Medicare to. Oh, MBS one. Yeah. Yeah. And April just knew. Yeah, I know. You just snap her fingers and she could tell you, oh, do this consult, mental health plan, this, this, this. It was just like. She's oh, amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? Like she's a machine. Anyway, I don't think she'll be able to. I predict that she will get someone to run her Kalgoorlie practice for her and she'll specialise in BFD. She's starting to do uh, internal reviews of medical practices to make sure that the proper MBS codes are being used and that it's, I guess, maximised um, for w- within what, what Medicare allows. Like she's very ethical and wanting it to oh. – but making sure that people are, are doing it right as well. She – I mean, that would be a huge help for any medical practice, mm. wouldn't it? Because She said it costs three or $4,000 but they make that money back over a week. Because she had ways of charging extra fees through Medicare that half the doctors weren't even aware of. Which but would that are all above totally board. Totally legit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, well, I think you should probably interview her next. I <laughs> should when she's in the way <laughs> next. She, she's been avoiding me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah, for being a guest today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, and people, if they want to get in touch with you, they go to ulegal.com.au. Yes and send you an email and they can start using your services and just um, get in contact if they want any sort of legal advice. Indeed. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah.